nine o'clock. How are you? Good to see you. Wait, good to see you here today. We have questions on doubt. What we're doing is we're following up from our live text and event about three weeks ago. With, with all of these questions, we simply did not have time to get to that day that specifically pertain to this, this, this struggle that many of us have with doubt. Now, before I get into the questions today, I, w- I would like to just frame this for a moment. I find that for many people, doubt is a lot like pain. It hurts, and they just want it to go away. From a certain perspective... I want to submit to you that doubt, like pain, is actually a good thing. Because what pain does is it gives you a diagnostic. It is your body's way of telling you that something is off or imbalanced or wrong. Doubt, in the same way, is a diagnostic. It can be an indicator that something is unbalanced, underdeveloped, unsettled, or maybe simply wrong. And the difficulty about something like today is something very akin to people who struggle with chronic pain, but never really deal with it beyond gritting their teeth. See, I mean, if you have chronic pain, it's really easy to not do the physical therapy, to not go to the doctor, to not have the surgery, and just keep popping aspirin to keep it at a tolerable level. And I meet people that treat pain or, or that treat doubt in the same way. That they go from quick spiritual hit to quick spiritual hit to, to simplistic answer to the next hit that hopefully gets them through to sustain the pain so they don't really have to deal with it. And what ends up happening is that some people start using doubt as an excuse to never have to take God seriously, while other people are afraid to deal with the reality of the pain, so they become spiritual junkies. They start getting hooked on, on quick spiritual fixes, going from church to church or method to method or radio preacher to radio preacher, as long as it's new and, and, and encouraging and as long as it keeps them sustained, but as soon as that hit starts wearing off, they're moving on to the next thing and they live this chronic life of spiritual doubt as an unproductive person in the kingdom of God. The problem with something like today is that what I'm going to offer you in in, in a 20 to 30 minute look is not the deep therapy, the operations and the surgeries and the stuff that really gets at the core of some of the chronic doubt. What I'm offering today is aspirin. Something to hope ease the pain for the moment to help you deal with it and then give you some prognosis of ways to investigate some of these amazing questions that we're going to have on the board here momentarily. Does that make sense? So with that being said, let's, uh, let's jump into it. Now, the first question is one that I did answer three weeks ago. But because it frames so many other things, it's, it's, it's worth repeating again and taking a look to set some groundwork. And here it is. Question one. Someone texted, I struggle with complete belief at times. How can I call myself a follower of Christ when I have doubts? 
My answer to you is you can call yourself a follower of Christ when you have doubts in the exact same way the apostles, early disciples, and believers since about 30 AD have been calling themselves followers of Christ amidst their doubts. Doubt is normal, just like pain is normal. It's a part of the spiritual experience and natural to anyone who is taking their faith seriously. Doubt does not preclude you from being a follower or believer in Jesus Christ. And an analogy that I gave um, about three weeks ago was this. Think of doubt like courage. See, I would argue that courage is not the absence of fear. That courage only exists when fear is there because what courage is at its heartbeat is is dealing with your fear or putting your fear aside and doing the job that needs to be done regardless of it. Faith is a lot like that. Faith isn't the absence of doubt. It's putting your doubt aside. Or in light of your doubt, trusting despite that which is working against it. Does that make sense? So take heart in that here today, that if you have doubts, You stand in a long stream of amazing followers of Jesus Christ since the time that he was walking this earth. And use that doubt not as something to paralyze you, but to fuel you to greater faith in its midst. Question two, when did Jesus doubt? See, three weeks ago when I answered this question, I said, even Jesus himself had times of doubt. And the short answer is this. You might remember, he's hanging on the cross. He says something. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, some of you are going to argue back, but God did forsake him, to which I'd answer, well, yeah, he did. But is Jesus just up there like repeating cosmic truth? Or is it actually personally and emotionally affecting him? I encourage you, never reduce the Bible to a sterile, systematic treatise on theology. It is the stories and accounts of real people, including Jesus, dealing and struggling with faith in real ways and real-life contexts. Question three. How is someone supposed to trust God again and have faith when all evidence throughout their lives proves God and the Bible are thoroughly unreliable and untrustworthy. You know, maybe you've been there yourself or know people whose outlook on life seems to be very much the same and and maybe just some encouragement off the bat. If you've felt this way or are feeling this way today, you're not alone. However, I'd like to challenge you on something. I'd like to challenge you on the idea that I don't think that all the evidence of your life proves this. Because when I read a question like this, I read a question of someone who's still in the trench. Someone who's suffering in an acute and deep and personal matter in the moment. And for those of us who have ever been in a lot of pain... All that we hear is pain. Am I right on that? Pain, when it is strong enough, has a way of crowding every other rational idea and thought and possibility out. And I think this might be going on just the same. I think if the pain wasn't there as strong right now, 
it wouldn't seem like all the evidence of your life proved God to be untrustworthy. In fact, I think much of the evidence of your life would show him to be faithful and trustworthy. But it's easy when we're in pain or in severe doubt to distort our view of reality. That being said, this is a question people in the Bible struggle with as well. I want to show you a couple of examples. This is Psalm 13. It says this, For the director of music, a psalm of David. David was the king of Israel. Important for our purposes is this one little line that you'll find in David's biblical bio. A man after God's own heart. What you're going to read is a song written by a man after God's own heart. This is what it says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or or I will sleep in death. My enemies will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Are you feeling the doubt and the pain and the struggle encapsulating his life? But look at what David does. He concludes by saying this. But I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. It's odd on the surface, isn't it? How does David move from paragraph two to paragraph three? Doesn't it feel bipolar? But this is what faith does. In the midst of overwhelming pain and sorrow and doubt, it says, but despite it, I'll hold on. Because faith is putting your doubt aside and holding on despite how it feels. And this is replete throughout the Bible. How about this from Habakkuk? How long, O Lord, must I call for help? And read this line with me. But you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Do you know what the answer is that he gets from God? You ever ask a question like this and want an answer from God? Maybe not after reading this prophet because the answer is this. You ain't seen nothing yet. You think this is bad? It's only the beginning. But look at how this prophet concludes. The last verses say this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stall, and you might be saying, but I don't grow figs and I don't want olives and I don't have sheep, go with the metaphor. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. 
See, what you see of these great people of faith in the Bible is people struggling with doubt in the deepest and most painfully profound ways, but through it all, holding on to God, not because they even see it as being faithful, but because they're willing to risk, to trust, that when he says he's faithful, he will be. And that's what so much of faith is about. Now, question four and five are similar. Four was this. How do I explain to non-believers why God lets bad things happen? To which I would simply ask, answer, how do I explain to a believer why God lets bad things happen? Followed by, as Christians, we should know that God cares and that the bad things that happen in our lives are not of God but of the world and that God can and does turn things around for good. But how do we explain this to to those who say that if God is a loving God or if he exists, he would not let such bad things happen? How do you explain it? My encouragement to you would be this. Explain it the same way the Bible explains it. Now, this subject, this, 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 this field of study, if you will, about why a good, all-powerful God allows suffering and unrighteousness in the world is called theodicy. So the prognosis now is, is that I am going to give you a direction and an answer. But as you follow up to study this thoroughly, because guys, this is one that you got to go deep on. Google theodicy. See what comes up on Amazon, all right? That being said... I would encourage you to approach it the way the Bible does. I will not get into all the specific ways that the Bible answers contexts, but I will give you three major moves that the Bible makes from Genesis to Revelation. They are called, you gotta, just go with me on this, the Deuteronomistic way, all right? What the heck is that? You've already closed me down. Well, you know the fifth book in the Bible, Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomistic, that's where it's coming from. Just go the Deuteronomy way. We'll make it easy, all right? The second is this, the wisdom way or wisdom literature. The third is this, apocalyptic. What do these three mean? Three different ways the Bible addresses and answers this question. The Deuteronomy way is this. God blesses the righteous. He punishes the wicked. God rewards good. He dishes out punishment to those who do bad. So one approach is to say that if I'm facing bad things in my life, God is punishing. God is disciplining. God is allowing me to face the outcome and outcropping, the consequences, uh, if you will, of my behaviors and actions. Do you like that way? Nobody likes that way, except the deluded, all right? You know what's unfortunate about that way? It's true. It's true. It is one of the ways that the Bible answers this question. But the difficulty with saying that it's true is to lead you to the conclusion that therefore, It is the entire truth, the complete truth, the whole truth, because the Bible gives other answers as well, because that might make sense to someone who's made bad choice after bad choice after bad choice, and it's clear as day to anyone why they're facing the things they face, but 
how do you deal with that when you're standing at the graveside of a two-year-old? There's a girl in my daughter Reagan's class that she's friends with whose older brother three years ago was in a car accident. It paralyzed him. He couldn't breathe on his own, not without equipment or help. His life in every respect was taken away, and for three years he lived that way. He caught pneumonia about a week or two ago, and yesterday was his funeral. He's a teenager, or maybe 20. Is God punishing him? I mean, is he facing that because, man, the sin must be bad in his life? Doesn't quite fit there, does it? And the people of God have wrestled with this too. And so another way that the Bible approaches it is, is, is what's, called, what, what's found in what's called wisdom literature. Now, this is a genre of literature in the scriptures. It's books like the Psalms and Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and others that, that, that seem to bring another way to it. And, and the basic approach of the, the biblical answer in these cases is this. We want to know answers. But God does not always reveal his wisdom. We want to know why, but God instead asks us to trust his purposes and his timing. And wisdom literature will say that that, that even though we don't get the answers that we want, God does not leave us alone in the midst, but he sends a mediator. And this mediator is often called wisdom or sometimes logos, which gets translated word, which gets very important when John opens his gospel going, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. That in the midst of suffering, the Deuteronomy view doesn't always hold, but God in his wisdom does not leave us to face it alone. But he grants pieces of his wisdom to allow us to trust him despite it. Now, there's a third way as well, and it's called apocalyptic. Revelation, Daniel, parts of Zechariah and Isaiah, and it appears in different forms and different prophets. And its approach is basically like this. Yeah, Deuteronomy, they just don't, just don't work. Um, no redemption is coming in this history. No freedom, no answer. Nothing good is going to solve it in history. It is going to take a supernatural cosmic intervention of God from outside of history to turn it on its head. And when that day comes, Deuteronomy will come true. The righteous will be rewarded and the evil will be punished and God will vindicate those who are suffering. It's three major streams of how the Bible answers this question. And the trick of spiritual discernment and wisdom is knowing how to apply the right biblical answer to the right struggle that you're facing. Next question. Last week, I straight up yelled at God. It didn't make me feel reassured. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Will God forgive me? And start giving me some peace and reassurance. First of all, God's shoulders are big enough to handle it. God's tough. He can take it on the chin. He doesn't have a glass jaw, so don't be afraid of that. 
You didn't break the relationship and you didn't break him. Second, will God forgive me? No, because you're already forgiven. All right? God forgive, you're living in God's forgiveness. Of course he'll forgive you because you're already in that state of forgiveness. God is not sitting there in heaven going, well, you know, you really ticked me off, so I'm going to just kind of sit here and, you know, kind of give you the stink eye until you... No, I mean, you are under the grace of God. He is not like that weird girlfriend you had in junior high, you know? I mean, <laughs> it's... But let me address the third when will he start giving me some peace and reassurance? I got a hard answer for you on this one. God is not an emotional drug dealer. Why are you desperate to get a spiritual fix from him? Are you looking for relationship with God or are you looking for the emotion that you have made synonymous with him? See, God is not in the business of just going around going, be happy, be happy. You know, he just doesn't zap people with emotion as though, I don't know why I'm so moved, but it feels great. It, it is not, God is not in the cosmic woodstock, all right? And it's not just this like eternal trip of, I don't know why I feel this way, but the colors are great. He, he doesn't do that. And I'm not trying to make light of of your struggle here, but peace and assurance are an outcropping of working through the issues. Peace and assurance are not a carrot that God dangles before you going, I'm just going to zap you someday. It's like doing therapy. It's hard at first and it hurts. And sometimes it hurts worse when you have to deal with it. But you start getting stronger and your, your body, your spiritual soul starts to balance and pretty soon... Peace and reassurance begin to make their way back in. But guys, I got to tell you, it's not something you shoot up spiritually. It's something that comes from doing the wrestling and the work with him. Number seven, how do I get through to an agnostic who used to go to a Christian church but doesn't like the idea that there's so many people that have different views of the, de- uh, of the details? Um, you know the same way you get through to someone who won't eat because there's so many different kinds of food? It's just like, man, I just can't stand all these flavors. You know, there is a rich meal that God has given his people and this thing called the church and theology. And different portions of these meals are fortified in different vitamins. It's like blueberries are good for you, but you can't just live on blueberries, right? I mean, I'd like to see what you'd look like in three months if you tried, but, but something tells me it's not the way to go because your body needs more. It's the same with your soul. God has got a variety and there's richness in, 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 in so many things. And different churches and different theologies and, and different believers tend to emphasize and bring out the fortification and nutrients of different aspects of theology. And I'd say this is a good thing. Now, to be sure, there's junk food out there, and you don't want too much of that. A little bit tastes good, but, you know, you can't live on it. And there's certainly things out there that are toxic and poisonous as well. But in a general overview kind of way, think of... Think of theology maybe like you think of art or like science. 
You know, I'm going to reject scientific discovery because there's so many different scientists out there who have so many different ideas. Really? It doesn't really hold up, does it? I'd encourage them to help see theology in God, maybe in similar ways. Eight. There we go. Is it wrong if a Christian stops going to church? Does it make them a, a bad Christian or a bad person? Okay, newsflash, you're already a bad person. You're already a bad Christian. That's why we're here, all right? If you're not a bad person or a bad Christian, you don't need a savior, so go worship and pray to yourself, all right? So let's just get that groundwork laid right away. But that being said, is it wrong if a Christian stops going to church? Straight up, it depends on the church. There's a lot of churches in this world that you're better off not going to than going to, all right? But I think you have to define what you mean by church. Because if church to you means coming into a building that runs a prescribed liturgy or order of service in a predictable way at a predictable time week after week and, and think 11th commandment, thou must do this. I tell you, believers throughout history have not been doing it that way. Because church ain't about this. Church is about the people sitting next to you and the believers you know in your circle and those that you've never met around the globe, and through space and time before and after you to come. So if what you're asking by this is, is it wrong for a Christian to stop associating with other Christians, to stop worshiping together with them and growing together with them and holding them accountable and encouraging them on and helping them in their time of needs? Yeah, that's wrong. That's wrong. Just make sure you've got the right definition of church when you approach this. Nine. If God's will is always done, why do we pray? Can we change God's mind? Um, God's will isn't always done. You know, there's two ways people talk about God's will, and they use it synonymously. There are certain things that God ordains to happen in this world, and no matter what you say or do, it's going to happen. But there's other things that God wants to happen in this world. that it gives us in this world freedom to disobey. God's will does not happen all the time. You think God's will is the mess of this world that we're in right now? The mess of a human being that you become? Jeez, I look at me and I go, if this is God's will, um, i got to rethink some things here. So yeah, you can change God's mind. And the scripture is filled with examples of, of a people pleading with God to change his mind, and sometimes I'm actually doing it. God changed his mind in Genesis 6. Abraham comes to God in Genesis like roughly 17 and 18 and, and pleads for him to change his mind. God comes to his position. Moses gets God to change his mind in Exodus 32 through 34. The people of Nineveh and the prophet Jonah repent, and God changes his mind again. God changes his mind all the time. I don't get it. I don't know how it works. I just know what the scriptures say. Prayer makes a difference. 
prayer works. And Jesus himself says, when you talk to God, talk to him like a whiny kid. Talk to him like, an unju- like he's an unjust judge that you need to wear down. Rag on him until he gets so sick of hearing you that he'll do what you want just so he doesn't have to hear your whining voice anymore. We've been there, parents, right? It works. It ain't cool, but it works. And Jesus says, treat God the same way. Yeah, God does change his mind. But I want to challenge you on something else as well. Is the only reason you pray is to get God to give you things? Because I'm sorry, that's really lame. That's like having a relationship with someone who only wants something out of you. See, prayer is conversation. And God wants to talk to you. And he wants to talk to you about more things than just, what do you want for Christmas this year? He wants to get to know you and he wants you to get to know him. He wants to share his life with you and you to share his life with him. He wants to hear what you're feeling and he wants to share what he's feeling with you. Do you know God actually wants to talk with you? I encourage you to see prayer as something far bigger than a cosmic wish list. Number 10, am I a disappointment to God? Man, we're all a disappointment to God. We all disappoint God. But you know what's cool about God? He keeps on loving us and believing in us. I mean, I think of the story of the prodigal son. You know this one? There's this kid who comes to his dad and he says, Dad, drop dead. I don't really care about you. I just want what you have. So, you know, he prays. Um, Give me my share of the estate. And he goes off and he squanders it in ways that would just disappoint his father immensely. He makes a ruin of his life. He finds himself in in dire straits. He's desperate. He comes up with a brilliant conclusion. You know what? My dad has servants that live better than I'm living right now. Maybe if I go back to my dad and say I'm sorry, I can at least live again like one of his servants. So again, it's a very altruistic, well-motivated thing going on here. Do you know what Jesus says the dad does? It says that while the son is still a long way off, the dad is standing there and he's looking for him. He's looking for his son waiting and yearning. And when he catches a glimpse of him on the horizon, his dad runs to him. He completely shames himself. He completely demeans himself. And he runs to his son and he wraps his arm around it. And and, and the son starts to kind of, Dad, I'm sorry. And he goes, I don't want to hear it. And he puts a robe around him and and a ring of authority on his finger. And he says, kill the fattened calf. Let's have a feast because my son is come home. You may have disappointed God royally, but that's the kind of God you've disappointed. So come running back to his arms because he's running towards yours. 11, how do you know, really know, that you're hearing God's voice doing what it is that he really wants you um, to be doing? I mean, who hasn't struggled with this one, right? I think it was Lily Tomlin who had a bit, um, who said, you know, when we talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to us, it's called schizophrenia. (laughs) Sometimes you'll hear believers talk about hearing God speaking to them. And it can be very disillusioning if you're not one of those believers, because you're like, I love him, but I just, 
It's crickets, man, you, you know? I, I, and so what does it mean and how do you know what God is telling you? Because we do worship a God who isn't a mute idol. We worship a God who speaks. I want to share with you what I consider to be the trifecta of figuring out God's voice. Scripture, conscience, and the church. And here's how it works. The reason that we put so much emphasis in what the Bible says is because we believe that this is God speaking to us. It is not just some words written down to people a long time ago that are recording events, but there is something living and active going on there. That God's spirit takes these words and he still speaks through them. Problem. I'm stupid. I'm dense and I'm ignorant. How about you? Which means it gets, it, just me, huh? Which, <laughs> it's like confirmation. Some people in the back are like, I knew it, you know? <laughs> you know, but, but what that means is I have, the, I have the possibility to distort scripture, to read it incorrectly, to misapply it, to kind of read this and think it's saying that one. No, it's like saying what it says. To which God, why God gives us a spirit that interacts with our conscience. Deep inside to convict us of that which is right and wrong, that which is good and that which is evil. But the problem is, I'm a sinner. How about you? Yeah, right? Which means I can sear or callous my conscience. I can harden my heart, which makes it ultimately not a foolproof guide either which is why God also gives us the church. And I don't mean four walls and a charter. I mean other believers who have gone before us, who gather around us, that God is continuing to speak in and through as well to bring his prophetic voice of consensus and wisdom and direction. But the problem is sometimes, you know, like groupthink just leads you down weird paths, doesn't it? And the church has been filled with history of this. So there's this tension that needs to be held of scripture and conscience and the voice of the church all working in balance and harmony to try to bring this out. Has this suddenly gotten exhausting to you? Welcome to life with God. God is not a God of quick fixes and cheap answers. He's a God of deep wisdom and a God of deep mystery who wants us to seek him and wrestle with him and get to know him in intimate ways that that are required for it to become more and more a part of us so we know what that voice sounds like in this world. And if you're here and you're reading the scriptures and you're still like... And I'm not saying an answer here or, or wisdom here. And you're searching your conscience and you don't know what to do. And, and, and you're not getting solid advice from, from the church that's praying for you and encouraging you and calling you out. I run back to this great little quote by Luther who said this. When you come to that point and you don't know what to do, do what you think is the most God-honoring choice that there is. And take heart that if you chose rightly, God is going to bless it. If you chose wrongly, God's going to forgive it. So you really can't lose. Two more to go. Will God reveal the truth to us on this earth after we die? 
God has revealed the truth to us now, just not in its entirety. I think of 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, now we see like as in a mirror dimly. But when that day of the Lord comes, when he restores all things, we will see like face to face with clarity. So yeah, we see some now and we'll see more after we die. However, I don't want you to get too ahead of yourself. This is me speaking, not the scriptures. I don't think the moment we die or the moment Christ comes back to this earth, it's just kind of like, boom, here it is, like big matrix download, and suddenly we all just kind of get it on the spot. I think heaven and eternity is an eternity of discovering more of who God is. That in 100,000 years, we will only begin to grasp the infinitesimal degree of how great and wonderful and good God is. And 100,000 years after that, we're going to increase another percent. You see what I mean? Does heaven ever seem boring to you? Eternity, like, what do you do? Imagine an eternity of getting to know with new discovery and new profundity the most amazing person who has ever lived, and you get to do it forever. That's what you get to look forward to. 13, how do you know when you are born in the Spirit? Please explain. To be born in the Spirit is one of these biblical phrases that is synonymous with salvation, synonymous with being a child of God, synonymous with being one who belongs to his covenant people, if you will, synonymous to one who is, well, you know, redeemed, forgiven, saved, born again, It's all different language God uses to describe and the scriptures use to describe the same thing. And here is the single foundational identity marker of someone who is saved, a child of God, redeemed, born in the spirit, however you want to put it. Faith. You are saved by grace. I can end it there. You're saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. It's a famous line of salvation from Ephesians 2.8. You're saved by grace, and faith is the marker. Faith is the sign. Yeah, I'm redeemed. I'm a child of God. And faith is not the absence of doubt, but it is trusting God and throwing yourself on his mercy, and trusting the promises he's made to you even when they seem bankrupt and void. That's how you know if you're born in the Spirit. What I attempted to do today was to give you aspirin and direction. For those of you here that are dealing with chronic doubt, those of you that are hiding behind doubt as a way to not be serious with God or who are denying your doubt because you think it somehow shows weakness or failure that God won't let you be born of the Spirit anymore, I'd like to give you some resources here today. Some things to really work your therapy over and start building the faith. Here's some books in the Bible that you can read, Habakkuk and Job and Ecclesiastes and Psalm, and just read the stories of their wrestle in the face of doubt. Some other books I recommend, Deserted by God by, or Deserted by God? 
by Sinclair Ferguson, Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey, The Blessing of Brokenness by Stanley, and basically anything C.S. Lewis has ever written, all right? But if you want to start, I would start in this order. The Problem of Pain, A Grief Observed, Mere Christianity, screw tape Letters. Don't deny your doubt. Face it head on. Deal with it. Know that God's there and he loves you in the midst. And that despite what your doubt is telling you, there is a God who is faithful and trustworthy that you can hold on to. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus invited his disciples to trust him. He took bread. He broke it. And he gave it to them. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. Trust that it's broken for you. Then he took a cup. And he gave thanks. And he gave it to them. And he said, drink this. Because this is my blood of a new covenant. And it's shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Looks like wine to me. But through doubt, he invites us to trust him. My sin feels unforgivable to me. But despite that doubt, he invites us to trust him. So this morning, on behalf of Christ, I say to you, welcome to the presence and forgiveness and blessing of the Lord.